Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. All right, mate. Well, let's get after it. All right, buddy. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Zach Abraham. He runs Bulwark Capital Management in Seattle. He's also got a radio show called Know Your Risk Radio. He's got some very interesting views on geopolitics, precious metals, undervalued stocks. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hey, Zach, how are you doing? Fantastic. How are you? I'm much, much better for having you on the show. I don't know about that. <laughs> so we, we've known each other for a little while. We've had some great conversations. Uh, you've got one of the more interesting backstories. Uh, tell us how you got into this. Tell us how you first got interested in this business. Oh, man, that's a uh, that's a long sorted tale. Um, so I, I guess I, you'd, I guess you could say I come by it honestly. Uh, my father and grandfather started a brokerage firm in the Seattle area and uh, 83. So literally grew up in, in a brokerage firm. Um, and then was just fat, you know, like a lot of guys talk about, you know, I think you're just made for this business one way or the other, just fascinated by the business and stocks and making money. And, and then as I got older, I kind of realized that at least in my opinion, you know, this is, I'm a competitive guy and this is, uh, you know, probably one of the most competitive games, if not the most competitive game. And so that, that kind of sucked me in. And so, Studied finance and economics while playing football in college and, and uh, got a job at Russell Investments right out of the gate um, and uh, hit the job market in an interesting time right around 2005, 2006. And uh, was sure after growing up in a brokerage firm, I was sure that I didn't want to deal directly with retail, right? I wanted to go to work for a fund or a, or a, or a mutual fund company, something like that. Um, and then through various different turns um, in markets and in my time at Russell, um, being very concerned about housing, kind of a roundabout way to, to tell the story, but being very concerned about housing and, and the impact it could have on markets. And then running that past a lot of colleagues that I worked with at Russell and everybody was, you know, kind of telling me, oh, kid, you don't know what you're talking about. Housing's never gone down. You know, we've all heard the stories, right? And, um, and then we were managing so i was managing some money at the same time in my father's firm at the, on the side and um we went short uh wasn't nearly as short as we should have been but um watching that whole thing unfold really soured soured me toward the institutional side of things it was more of a uh wasn't really a meritocracy you know it was a bureaucracy and being an athlete and growing up in a small business, that just wasn't really conducive. So got recruited to be a broker at Wells, Wells Fargo Advisors. And uh, my first and, and accepted that. 
uh, and then my first day on the job was September 15th, 2008. Um, <laughs> so I walked in the office starting out. They threw a phone book at me. The Dow was down 1,200 points, I want to say, and said, get after it, kid. And, uh, you know, here we are and 11 years later, and, um, you know, I'm still in it. So I guess that's a good thing, but it's been a, it's been a wild ride. What do you pitch to people when the Dow's down that 1,200 points? Value. <laughs> right this is this is a good time to do it no that was that was tough um you know especially starting out you know I, the traditional broker route um you know while probably not appreciated by a lot of the institutional guys and guys that run funds it's a it's a tough way to come up i think the failure rate was like 93% in the first 2 years or 3 years and uh and then i that that's probably compounded a bit when you start um in the middle of September 2000 or, you know, September 2008. So it, it was tough. Um, we were pitching to them, you know, value, uh, dividends, you know, I, all the same stuff that a lot of guys were pitching. And we actually, ironically, our, my best run in managing money, my best returns uh, were from the period of the end of 2007 to the middle of 2010. So we did really well during that period. And then, um, then probably got a little overconfident with that performance um, and then learned a lot. <laughs> learned a, uh, What is the old quote? I don't remember who said it, but, you know, every investment teaches us or we either get wiser or richer with every investment, neither both, you know, never both. Um, I think Mark Yusko said that, or at least that's where I that's got it. That's a good it. line. Yeah, I, lo I love that. And it's it's been true in, in my in my profession or in my uh, in my time in the business. So. Yeah, it, it was tough. We, we did a lot of MLPs looking for dividends, you know, stuff during that period of time. And at the same time, though, you and I both being value guys, it was tough, but it was also like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you know, everywhere you look, there was value. If you get past the, you know, the whole fear of the entire economic financial system unraveling, which, you know, was a big, which was a legitimate fear at the time. But yeah, it was uh it was an interesting road. Very much so. And that was a really good uh, period for value. That last quarter of 2008, first quarter of 2009, it kind of, it, it, I remember that very vividly because the, the last quarter of 2008, the portfolios, value portfolios were basically flat, even though the market was down about 12 or 13%. Same thing again in the first quarter of 2009. And that's one of the features of value that I like so much. It's always front running the market a little bit. So the, the, the downside is it sells off first. Value investors yeah. seem to get the message first, but it also recovers first. That six months before the market really got the message, value had already taken off. So you, coming from a coming from a, a a family two generations beforehand who'd been in the markets, you must have seen some pretty crazy stuff. You remember 1987 pretty vividly. Yeah, I think you and I talked about that the last time I was down in your neck of the woods. Um, I, you know, I think growing up in the industry, especially the way that my my dad and grandfather ran their firm, they were a brokerage firm, but they were really they were really VC guys uh, on the natural resource side of things. So, you know, I think anybody in, has spent any time in markets or managing a portfolio knows that natural resources is a it's a different animal altogether. Uh, and so they were in the middle of a, I still remember it to this day. I was probably only five and five and a half years old, but remember my dad walking through the door on black Monday and the look on his face, you know, it looked like he aged like 10 years. And, uh, they were in the middle of a money raise for a, for a gold mining project. Interestingly enough, kind of a prescient topic today. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole deal blew up instantly. And, um, and, and watching that, watching that, 
uh, you know, disappointment watching the downside of markets, seeing it again in a, in a more muted fashion again in 89, the recession, in the early 90s, the Asian currency issues in the 90s, uh, the dot com bubble. Uh, watching all that up front, it, it gave me, you know, I'm kind of old beyond my years, I guess you'd say, much more jaundiced, um, maybe more of a contrarian perspective, just realizing that. You know, probably a bit of a short seller streak in me as well. As a matter of fact, some of my best stuff has been on the short side. So, you know, just realizing that there's a flip side to the coin and, and you know, not being enamored with, uh, you know, the opportunity to get rich and, and just seeing the downside, watching watching the impact it had on my dad. And not just psychologically, there was a, there was a health impact as well uh, from the stress of that situation. And so... You know, I just it's a different experience from a different angle. And, and I think it's kind of given me a different perspective on things. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's what that's the point that I was just going to make about you. It's, it's as if you've been in the market for a very, very long time because you <laughs> and and you've even like your you call your radio show Know Your Risk Radio. And that's I think that that's yeah. kind of unusual because there's a lot of people in the market who've only it's been a 10 year bull market. Nobody has seen what happens. Not many people yeah. have seen what happens. When you go yeah. through the meat grinder at the other end, right? And and uh, I, you know, I think I think that again with that perspective that I've had, and, and you know, and it's just kind of been a theme, right? I mean, you know, starting off in the business, actually on the brokerage side of things, you know, the day Lehman Brothers collapsed, you just had all these things reinforced, and it forces forces you to be sober. Um, or, or at least it should, you know, hopefully you learn that lesson. And, uh, you know, my clients tell me all the time, they're like, Zach, you know, you're the oldest 37 year old. You're we're, I'm not supposed to be encouraging my money manager to take more risks. And, uh, but we, the other side of it too, and I know that, you know, this, you run money as well. Um, it, it, it really is all risk management. You know, it, that's the name of the game is, is managing your risk. You know, when to swing big, when to pull back, Knowing what's, which parts of the portfolio you want to expose to risk, which you don't, you know, how much you can afford to lose. Um, you know, it's, I think those are lessons learned by scars, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's especially now, like you said, 10 years into a bull market, no one's talking about it. You know, it's to infinity and beyond. We refer to it as the buzz light year market on our radio show. You know, it's just everything's going to work out. And unfortunately, you and I know that's not the case. To infinity and beyond meat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Prescient. That's uh, that's very fitting. Yeah, I've been I've been tweeting about Beyond Meat. I I, I can't do anything with it because it's it's been uh, it hasn't been listed for long enough uh, oh, okay. to sort of get any view on it. But there's so much heat in that thing. Even though you know they, they they don't even have the good grace to lose enough money. You know they're not even big enough to justify the the size of the market cap. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, and, and again, going through the late 90s, my dad was a, uh, a value guy, uh, a natural resource VC investing value guy, which is sort of an Renaissance option, right? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's kind of two opposite ends of it, right? Um, but yeah, seeing, watch, I, I didn't think we'd see speculative valuations like this again. Uh, I, I just didn't think you'd see it, you know, where you're looking at these companies on a valuation basis and you're and you're saying, look, I, I don't know when, but if you pay up at this price, you're going to lose money. It's it, right. you book, book it, you know, um, and <laughs> I and I you and I have spoken about this off air, especially the six months of this year. 
have been tough because value, the market has skyrocketed. Value has just been in the tank. Right. And uh, I'm hoping, well, like you and I have spoken again uh, already about, I'm, I'm hoping this is sort of a blow off bottom, if you will, in value. Because, right. I mean, it's getting absurd. You know, the, the, the spread between the valuations of growth and value, it's just... I, again, I just didn't think we'd ever see it again. Well, let's talk about some undervalued names. Um, Taylor Brands, the ticker's TLRD. I know that's one of your favorite stocks. So tell us a little bit about Taylor and, and what you think is going to happen there. Okay, well, that, boy, that's a, it's one of my favorite brand. It's one of my favorite names uh, with a bullet, right? It's, it's uh, I, I think it's an incredible value opportunity, but it's been a tough one to, to be involved with like a lot of value has. Um, we do, my wife affectionately refers to that that side of, of what we do as dumpster diving. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of a take on a similar approach to Michael Burry. Um, and I'm not equating myself to Michael Burry at all. So, uh, but yeah, just looking for things that are trading well below their intrinsic value and have a lot of bad um, energy around it, you know, and where you, you look underneath the hood and you find a, a good business or a good segment of a business and you sit there and think it's, you know, the downsides overcooked. Um, and we first noticed Taylor, I want to say back in 2015, I want to say right after they just, they, they executed a disastrous merger with Joseph A. Bank. Um, so it's the old, it's the old menswear, it's men's warehouse yes, combined yes. with, uh, Joseph A. Bank. Yeah, they did a merger, right? They were gonna, they were each other's biggest competitors, and they came up with this brilliant idea to merge. And Men's Warehouse paid way too much for Joseph A. Bank. Uh, the stock at the time of the merger was sixty-five bucks. Came onto our radar screen around seventeen or eighteen. Um, and we've got a saying, you know, just because something's down ninety percent doesn't mean we'll buy it, but we're gonna stop and take a look. Well, there's a uh, there's a great Einhorn line where he says, "What do you call a stock that's down ninety percent?" He says, "It's a stock that was down eighty percent and got cut in half." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and we it's not our first radio or rodeo when it comes to stocks like that. So we're certainly aware of that possibility and you got to be careful. But we just started looking at this company and went, look, Men's Warehouse is a phenomenal brand, um, been around for a long time. Uh, you know, it had all the hallmarks of a good business, um, you know, right down to the way they train their employees. And, and we really did a deep dive on it for quite some time. And so we started accumulating, accumulating shares, I want to say at the end of 2015. I think our, our average price was around, you know, 13, 14, 15 bucks a share. And, um, you know, sure enough, it, it had a couple quarters that weren't as bad as everybody thought and the stock popped to 34. We had a fair value target on it around 28 to 30. And so we sold out between 28 to 30 and then moved on. And uh, in the last year, uh, the shorts came out again and, and the, the um, equity got smashed, uh, dropped down to $12, $13 range. We bought some more, which, which uh, look, I don't usually like to do that because, you know, I feel like you're tempting the fates a little bit too much. It's kind of, it's kind of superstitious, but when you make money on a trade like that, I, I, I'm always very cautious about reentering the fray. You know, because take the money and run. Um, but again, it was just a valuation. It's just compelling. When I can buy a company that's got $270 million of free cash flow for a $650 million market cap, it, I, you know, it's just hard to turn that down, especially in today's market. So um, 
and anybody can pull up the ticker price and realize that's been a tough ride over the last four to five months for us. Because do you, do you like, like the way it looks? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Um, but I mean, it's just you, you know, it, we've all been there before. You know, the market starts moving against you, and we we started accumulating at thirteen. We picked up some more at eight. We picked up uh, a little bit more at six. It's currently at five fifty. Um, we think the dividend is safe, at least for the near term. I, I, it's, it's really a tough deal because I've got some issues with the way the company is managed. For instance, when, when they took a write down on the Joseph A. Bank uh, purchase, which they should have done, never should have happened in the first place. They took a one, I believe it was a $1.3 billion write down on a $1.8 billion purchase. And at the, I was a fan of them suspending the dividend at that point, you know, just take it all up front, use the dividend to pay down the, uh, pay down the debt. They didn't do that. Um, the argument at the time was they thought it would be it scare away too many investors and be harmful to the stock. Well, that was when the stock was at 15 bucks a share. We're now at five and a half. So I, there, there's definitely some management issues, but they got a new CEO who I think is on the right track. And again, you know, it, it's dropped a little bit uh, in terms of the free cash flow, but we're still looking at a a, a company that's going to cap, you know, have free cash flow somewhere north of 200 million this year. And um, it really looks to us like sales are bottoming and. Um, you know, it's just, again, it, it, it's just, there's just that value there that you really have a tough time walking away from. And, um, you know, the, the current market caps got bankruptcy priced in and I, you know, I, I just, I can't see it. I mean, how much did, how much did are they carry? They're at about 1.1 billion. So they've got a load, uh, enterprise value of the company right now is right around 1.3, 1.35. But, you know, you're talking about a company that did 3.2 billion in revenue, right. um, you know, that has other brands as well, you know, some valuable brands, some not as valuable. But, um, you know, you start pricing out the assets and I, you know, I don't really care what kind of math you're using or what kind of model you're using. You're looking at the enterprise value of this company and just saying, look, it, it, if it's if it's if this is a fair valuation, then everything has to not work. Every every asset they own is worth nothing. Um and, you know, that's not the case. And like I said, it, it's out of style right now because you don't see the revenue growth. Um, and that's the name of the game right now. But, you know, it's just if you can take it and you, you can take the heat, I think there's incredible value there over the long run. Not a recommendation by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it's it's a it's a core holding of ours at this point. You know, Joseph A. Banks is an interesting stock that I followed for a long time because it was a net net at one stage about 10 years ago. And that was because they, they carry an enormous amount of suit inventory. And the, the question was, you know, how, how do you value that suit inventory? And so I've had, I've heard two different uh, arguments on it. One was from John Hempton, who's the Australian short seller. He said, when they swell up a big asset like that, sometimes that could mean that there's some fraud going on in the sense that, yeah. the, you know, that's a way of uh, hiding the, it's, that's the accrual. That's where the accrual shows up. But then the other side of the argument is, you know, men buy suits, they walk into a suit store and they want to be able to walk back out with the one that they, they pick and they're not going to wait around. So you need to have this big inventory of suits and suits don't go out of style that quickly. And so it was legitimate for them to have that much on. Probably that's been resolved with the acquisition if they've if they've written off that $1.3 billion or whatever it was in the $1.1 billion, whatever issue was there is now probably gone away. And the Joseph A. Bank guys have probably got off scot-free. Yeah, you know, again, this goes back to the conversation we were having down in in, uh, in your neck of the woods a few months back. But mm. yeah, it, and ironically, that's actually what what got us to take the leap on the stock was the write-down. 
the write downs where we went, okay, everything bad is priced into this thing. It, you know, it, it can't get a lot worse. Um, and that was, that was the point where we kind of jumped in and said, look, I don't really know what the value of Joseph A. Bank is, but if you're going to write off 1.3 billion of that purchase, then, uh, you know, you've taken it on the chin and this seems like a good time to enter. And, you know, last quarter was, was tough for retailers all around. Joseph A. Bank sales were down 0.7%. So it really looks like us to, that it's bottoming. Again, I don't know what Joseph A. Bank is worth, but it's worth more than zero. And that's where the current equity is priced at. I mean, you you look at the whole company, it's trading at a value below what men's warehouse is worth on, on just a cash flow basis. So so that was that was really the jumping off point for us was that write down. And, and like I said, I we didn't know what it was, what Joseph A. Bank was worth, but, you know, it's worth more than zero. Um, and then, you know, the entire enterprise is being valued at less than what we thought men's warehouse would sell for. So. Again, it's a tough time to be in value stocks. I've received a bunch of calls from clients going, this thing's horrible. Why do we own this? And uh, that's an interesting conversation to have. But we've got great clients and they've been patient with us. So hopefully it'll work out. So um, just going back to your Know Your Risk Radio, um, you're clearly, as we've discussed in the past, you're nervous about where the market is. Uh, you, you see market as being overvalued? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, you know, you and I have had, I, I, there's some really interesting things going on on valuations. Again, we've spoken about this, but, you know, you look at the discrepancy between, you know, the Buffett metric, right, uh, market capitalization versus GNP, um, you know, price to sales, uh, you know, all these different value valuation metrics. And one of the things that we've spent some time looking at is the spread between PE ratios and those other uh, valuation metrics. I think a lot of it probably has to do with, the unprecedented level of debt and how that isn't, you know, figured into um, uh, pricing models, um, at least on valuation basis. And um, it, it's it's certainly confusing. But yeah, when you look at, you know, for instance, when I when I look at a stock like Coca-Cola, who's got, you know, re don't quote me, I obviously don't have the data in front of me, but, you know, whose revenues down something like 20, 25, 30 percent or something like that over the last four years. And it's still sporting a 34 price to earnings multiple, you know, are you looking at Walmart at above 40, something like that? I mean, you know, it's just everybody suspending reality. One of the interesting things I think about um, uh, Walmart, and this kind of opens Pandora's box. So if this gets us off the beaten path, you ought to forgive me. But um, it's something we referred to about two and a half years ago, and I thought it was cute at the time. And it's it's been one of those things that's kind of come to fruition um, which I wish it wouldn't have, but we talked about the Amazoning effect of the market, just how Amazon was the darling and how we really thought that this was going to spread, that this we were going to look at revenue growth above all else, right? And so I didn't think that that would get extrapolated over to stocks like Walmart, right? You look at Walmart over the last, I want to say, three years, profits have or, or, or net earnings have gone from 14.2 billion to 7.1 billion a 50% drop over the same period of time the stocks up 50% and and everybody goes well that's because they're investing in the business and I sit back and look at them and I'm like boy you've got a lot of faith in their investing ability right their investing capability I mean that's that's unbelievable to me the other side of it is what like how much better you could not come up with a better way to let management off the hook right 
Don't pay attention to our earnings anymore. Don't pay attention to the whole purpose for why we're a business entity. That doesn't count because we're investing. And, um, you know, I think the market has just made unbelievable assumptions about how those investments are going to turn out. Um, and, and those are just leaps of faith that we're not, I'm not going to take with my money. I'm not going to take with my client's money and I'm, I'm not going to take with anybody's money. Um, and I, and I think that extends to the overall market. I mean, there's just no focus on earnings or quality of earnings. Um, you know, the other metric that you hear that's astounding is like historically the spread between gap accounting and adjusted accounting has never been wider. And if you don't think that there is fraud hiding in that, um, at the very least, right, we're talking about valuations. We're not even talking about the possibility of fraud. You could not till the soil in a way that was more conducive to growing fraudulent companies than is currently the case. You just you couldn't do it. Galbraith used to refer to that uh, the difference between what you thought the situation was and what the actual situation was as the bezel, like that's the amount of fraud that's going on. And the bezel swells at times like this because you can get away with fraud. Oh. And then it all turns up in the crash. Yeah. I mean, I look at it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I envy these guys. I wish I could run my my business on a revenue basis and not not be accountable for earnings. It'd be kind of tough to explain to the wife, you know, hey, honey, we don't have any money in the account, but revenue is rocking and rolling, you know. <laughs> uh, well, and, you know, Josh Brown uh, recently put out a and I couldn't we spoke about this on our radio show last week. I, I didn't really spend a lot of time trying to figure out whether he was saying it was justified or not. But he was talking about these high revenue growth companies and how they could be, you know, kind of the new paradigm. And uh, he was saying, you know, it's it's the equivalent of having a business model that sells one hundred dollars for ninety bucks. And you know, that's the other unspoken aspect of all these companies that you see going through the roof is th what the market is building into them is this unbelievable profitable ups upside, right? And it's on the basis of incredible revenue growth. That revenue growth is enabled because they're web-based companies, meaning they can scale on an international level instantly, right? Well, th that knife cuts both ways. So any potential competitors can do the exact same. Um, and, you know, you look at cloud computing, and I know that there are, and I'm not a tech expert by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, cloud's obviously really hot. Kind of reminds me of the dot-com bubble, you know, just throw the cloud into your name. You know, it's kind of like Bitcoin people were doing not too long ago. Um, <clears throat> but the, uh, the, you know, you, I, I look at that whole setup of those types of companies and I just see unbelievable, unending margin pressure, right? On the, on the very base of it, like the basis of it, like the AWSs of the world, great businesses. And I'm not attacking the viability of those businesses at all, but, you know, you, you've got this cash infusion or building these server you know, clusters or server, what is it, server farms. And, you know, the more pro you've already got that fixed cost, you've already put that money. in. so every person, every company you put through there is just money to the bottom line. Well, I mean, that's just a, that, that's, I mean, talk about margins that are just begging to be crushed. Um, and so I just think that there's just a lot of false belief and a lot of false faith that this time is different. And of course, you and I know that's never the case. Well, it's very interesting that uh, we margins particularly, I think, are very high. And we've seen that in... So I got a question on Twitter 
somebody said Boeing, you know, when the when they had the the problem with the Max seven three seven, whatever it is, um, when the somebody said, "Have you had a look at Boeing? Like, do you think it's do you think it's cheap?" And, I, and they said, "How much further would it have to fall before you think that it would be cheap?" And I looked at it. And I thought, well, this thing's like, I think this thing's at least two times overvalued. And they copied Jesse Felder as well. And Jesse Felder said, I agree. And he looked at a different metric to the one that I was looking at. He looked at price to sales. And I looked at the price to sales on it. And it had taken this hockey stick in about 2015, 16, something like that. And then I looked at a few other charts. A lot of companies have had this in a, on a price to sales basis. It's not something that I watch really closely, but I looked at it when Jesse raised it. Many companies have had this hockey stick of... The value, like this is this is not a hockey stick in revenue growth. This is a hockey stick in revenue ratio. Price to price to sales has exploded, and so yeah. we talked about that at the time. What 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 are your thoughts on that? Man, my thoughts are you're hitting on all the controversial stuff that we've that we've invested in and talked about. Uh, so we we really hadn't been involved in Boeing in a long time. It's a local company here. Um, you know, have had family that's worked for Boeing. I've got clients that have retired from there, uh, clients that still work there. Uh, a lot of connections, obviously. I think everybody living in Seattle or that's grown up around here, you know, it's it's one of the main employers. Um, the <clears throat> the performance of the stock has been really unbelievable, and uh, we did we started looking at it again, just you know, watching a stock that was so range bound for decades. Uh, explode the way it has. It attracted our attention, and we started really looking into it at the end of last year. And um, and we were fortunate enough to have some connections. And and as we started digging deeper into it, um, we we kind of leveraged those connections for some uh, interviews that we did. We did about six or seven interviews with, you know, not not executive board stuff, not C not C suite people, but. You know, people high up in the in the senior executive circles, if you will. And, um, you know, this belief, the basis of the valuation on Boeing was this belief that they had this incredible cost cutting program going on, that they were just really trimming the fat and it was a lean machine. And then, of course, you had the backlog, right? Everybody was familiar with the backlog. I think at the height, it was at six hundred and fifty billion dollars for the planes. And um, first of all, you know, from living here in this area for so long, um, Boeing always has a backlog at the top of markets. And when your biggest customers are nations themselves, when the economy turns south and they decide they don't want to buy from you, uh, good luck enforcing the contract. <laughs> you go right? send in the army or something. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so, you know, that kind of caught our eye. As we dug in deeper, and again, one, one of these things that it always catches my eye is when you've got a company like Boeing who's had some really brilliant executives, um, you know, and I'm just blanking right now, but, uh, or Alan Mulally, you know, the guy that was there in the, in the 2000s that did some great things with them uh, and then went on to lead Ford and, and do a good job there as well. But you've had some brilliant executives and what you're asking me to do is suspend my belief in what your business is. And you're asking me to believe that this new executive, these new executives they put in place are just five times more brilliant than the guys that were there, that there was all this waste. So we really started attacking it from the, the cost cutting side, like, is this real? And with every single interview we did, there were a couple of themes that just kept coming up and they were too big to, to ignore. And that was that A, management is solely focused on the price of the stock. Everybody we talked to said $800, $800. Uh, that, was, that was all they were talking about. 
the minute I hear executives focused on stock price that my ears always perk up, right? You, you can't serve two masters. Are you focused on your business or are you focused on the price of the equity? And those are often, a lot of times those things are in conflict, uh, at least in the short run. Right. So, <clears throat> so as we started digging into it on the research side and doing these interviews, as it related to cost cuttings, the vast majority of them, in our opinion, are cost deferments. They're not cuttings. So, and this is firsthand uh, uh, knowledge that we've had with people that have been at the company, you know, 32 years, senior uh, executives in the accounting department, talking about how that they they have suspended a lot of traditional maintenance costs. And whenever they approached people on the management committee and said, "Why are we doing this?" the answer was always the same: "Is it has you have you seen the 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 performance of the stock, right?" And so that that certainly caught our caught our attention. And like I said, these were themes. They just they kept recurring. I'm talking to having broken down elevators for six months on, on the factory floors and not repairing them. I'm talking about HVAC units that are out of out of service for months uh, that aren't being repaired. Um, I'm talking about uh, roofs that are damaged or leaking and that need to be fixed. And, you know, they're deferring that cost out into the future. So so bottom line is all the cost cuts everybody was talking about, they're really cost deferments. So it, it, it looks artificially more profitable than it is. Then you move on to the backlog. And I had about a three hour interview with a senior account executive, accounting executive that had been there 32 years. And they said that um, the backlog wasn't all it seemed. And, and again, my eyes kind of widened. And I went, well, what do you mean? And they said that the 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 prices that now their words were 75 to 80 percent of the backlog so again it's it's hearsay but this is a person you know we dug into their background they had been a senior accounting executive there you know so we did our due diligence but they said that the backlog is priced at sales that if the company were to deliver those jets today they would deliver them at a loss and I kind of sat back and went, well, why in the world would they do that? And and they said, well, management's betting on the come. They're betting that they can continue to cut costs in such a way that when they deliver those out into the future, that they're going to be profitable. And it, it, you, there were a couple things. First of all, it made sense. I sat there and went, okay, this makes sense. That 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 would help you build a backlog. And then second of all, it it was then they, oh then I asked her what allowances have they made for an increase in input costs and inflation? And, and they said none. So <laughs> you, and you and I both know that one of the things that's really missed out for the most part on this bull run that we've had have been the materials, have been the input costs right. for a company like Boeing Jets, um, you know, which are significant. I mean, you look at the cost of a Boeing, I mean, it's all input costs. I mean, it's all material costs. That's what it is. So, you know, and you've got inflationary pressures building. So, look, I, it may go up. It may not. I don't know. I just know that the stock is the definition of being priced to perfection. So we went on and kind of laid this out on an hour long radio show that we did. And, uh, you know, we've got an hour long radio show on the weekends. Right. Finance based. So I don't I don't, you know, lie to myself and convince, it's not, you know, it's not like we're can't miss radio or something like that. But the amount of, of feedback we got and the amount of ire that was raised was uh, unbelievable. We got a call from a senior Boeing executive that wanted to set me straight. And again, that was another red flag. Sitting there going, what, what in the world are they – why do they care what some yeah. nobody on financial radio has to say uh, on a weekend? But just I just see a ton of red flags. I, I don't think that there's fraud uh, per se. I just think that it's – 
you know, it's a classic case of pricing a business to perfection. And, you know, there's no such thing as bad assets. There's just bad prices. And I just think it's a really, really bad price. So there's lots of there's lots of micro examples of overvaluation, and uh, you mentioned the there's a macro measure, Buffett's measure, and I, you can I, I I don't know whether Buffett's measure is necessarily exactly right, but then you look at it with Schiller, and Schiller gives you a similar answer. You look at it with Tobin's Q, which so Schiller looks at uh, inflation-adjusted average of earnings. Tobin's Q looks at replacement value of assets versus market value of assets. And uh, Buffett's measure is looking at the total size of the market relative to the economy. And so they're all totally different uh, snapshots of the market, and they all give you a pretty similar answer. The, the problem is that they've given a pretty similar answer, which is to say that it's very overvalued for a long period of time. So what, what do you do in, uh, in an environment like that, and how do you protect yourself for the inevitable sort of decline? Man, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you have any suggestions, I'd be happy to hear them. <laughs> um, no, look, we've continued to focus on value. Um, it, it hasn't been it hasn't been easy. Um, you know, we've had some good wins here and there. Um, we've we've kind of gone back and forth. We had a good year last year, but it really we finished like up half a point in our actively managed portfolio. Um, but that was almost entirely due to hedging. You know, it wasn't like we picked some great stocks. So that's kind of a, you know, I got, definitely got to throw that caveat in there. Um, this year, we've underperformed significantly. Um, and, you know, it, it's just about trying to stick with it and, and trying to keep ahead, you know, uh, above my head here. I've got the if poem hanging on oh, my yeah. wall. And, the Kipling you know, poem. Yeah, you're trying to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. And, and um, you know, and just knowing that, that, you know, it's it's going to take a turn. I mean, asset prices have to be valued at their intrinsic value at, at some point and, um, you know, just sticking with it. The other thing that we've really done and uh, I've actually dreaded this. I've actually dreaded this part of this conversation just because it's kind of seen as sacrilege in the finance industry. But we've also introduced the use of uh, uh, some insurance type structured products into our clients portfolio as a bond alternative. And um, it's something I never thought I'd do. You know, I'm, a, again, raised in a brokerage firm, studied finance and economics. Um, you know, we look down at anything insurance related. You know, it's just garbage, right? Well, you know, I, that industry has changed a lot. And there's some really, really attractive um, um, offerings, especially on the retail side, right? I think it's important to point out we're a registered investment advisor. So, you know, we're looking at things a little bit differently. We're not a hedge fund. Um, and so we started utilizing some of those insurance products in our clients' portfolios as bond replacements. And ironically, that's been a huge winner for us. So how do they work? Because they do have a bad name, but you've found something interesting with the way that these ones function. Yeah. So kind of, I kind of go back to the beginning of the story for you on that one. Um, when we, 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 like I said, we had our best performance I think we were up about a net of about 120% from the end of from the end of 07 to the middle point of 2010. And then, you know, I was a, a big gold fan at that time, was sure that the world was going to come apart. And so where to deploy capital started being really tough, not just on the not just on the stock side. You know, I knew that stocks could do whatever they wanted. And uh, but the bond side, right, the whole modern portfolio approach that, you know, the vast majority of our clients are in retirement or nearing retirement. And so 
you know, you do it by the book, you're looking at, you know, 30 to 40% in stock in bonds. And we were looking at bonds and just saying, you know, this is the most obvious underperforming part of the portfolio. Um, they mathematically cannot throw up the type of performance that they have over the last 30 or 40 years and saying what we really need to do is find a replacement for the bond side of our client's portfolio. And I thought that that was going to be a pretty easy task, uh, but it, it, it ended up being a lot more complicated than we thought because there were really three criteria that we were looking to, to, to address. And that was a, whatever we chose had to be as safe or safer than bonds. We weren't going to jump out of the frying pan into the fire. That was number one. Number two was if we're going to pivot because we don't see the possibility, you know, due to where interest rates are, you know, fed funds was still at zero at that point. Um, you know, Rates are either going to stay low or they got to go up. So we've got to find whatever that safe alternative is that we use has got to be able to to do well in a rising interest rate environment. And so that was number two. And then number three was we cannot add significant cost. If we're worried about underperformance, you know, we can't be tacking onto the cost of the portfolio. So that, again, sounded sounds easy at the offset and then got about you know, literally eight to nine months into the process and, and couldn't figure out a way around that as an alternative to fixed income. Um, so now we'll still use fixed income and we have as uh, more of a tactical type thing, but just not as that consistent part of the portfolio. And so um, at the behest of a relative of mine who was in the insurance industry, who I didn't want to listen to because he was in the insurance industry, right? It's He's not a finance guy. Uh, I started looking at something called the fixed indexed annuity. Now, before everybody turns the podcast off right now, <laughs> let me let me let, let me explain. I'll have to because bleep it that was out. Really hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a we have a segment on our radio show called the Dirtiest Word in Investing, and it's annuity. Yeah. Um, but but what we'll start off by saying is that it's really you know there's so much negativity built around the name. I think my natural value inclination made me a little more open to it, right? Um, and so what we started finding out when we dug into these products is, A, uh, you could get a fee-free version of the product. You could strip off all the extra insurance riders and you were left with this product that was guaranteed against loss, that had no management fee, and that was giving you literally 50 to 60% of the S&P 500, depending on, the, depending on the product. And it was a nine to 10 year contract um, and you started looking that and running the numbers on it and it looked really attractive. Um, you know, just think about it, you know, you get a 60% free ride on the S and P 500 in up years, you go up with it down years, you're guaranteed against loss. So when you look at the returns, it literally looks like a stare. So now again, due to my, my view on insurance, that was enough to pique my interest, but I was completely skeptical of all the information I was reading. I was like, you know, this is how insurance companies get you, right? So we spent time talking to the actuaries that built it. We spent guy, time talking to the guys that built some of the different indexing models. We flew to New York, met with guys at JP Morgan that built the new volatility adjusted uh, index that they were using inside of a product, spoke to executives and actuaries at, at Nationwide. Uh, that was a uh, JP Morgan and Nationwide were two companies that we had some um, some contacts in. And really doing our due diligence and just sat there and started looking at these products and said, look, on a risk adjusted basis, if we take the typical 60 40 portfolio and we swap out the bonds with one of these products, we've done a couple things. A, we've just de risked the portfolio. We've got a portfolio that can't lose money. 
Um, everybody goes, yeah, well, insurance companies can go broke. And it, it, that's true. But it's an interesting thing about the insurance industry is that every single state has an insurance guarantee fund. So these products are essentially backed up by the states themselves. And then you look at the default rates or, or the, the, the amount of these products that have gone under and there's virtually none. Anytime a company faults or, or a company goes sideways or belly up, uh, the insurance commission steps in and typically negotiates a buyout of the assets. But the purchasing company has to honor the uh, right. terms of the original contract. So, it, 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 so we started looking at it, the cost side of it, the safety side of it, check, right? We, we, we got cheaper and we got more, we had got even more secure. Then on the performance side of it, um, we didn't know that the underlying indexes were going to perform as well as they have, but it's been a boon. I mean, um, you know, we were hoping to average four and a half to five and a half percent annual returns. And that portion of our clients' portfolio has been up an average of seven to eight since we started using these uh, in 2011. And it took about three years to get comfortable with it. Every time we get return numbers back, I'd kind of sit there and view it like this, you know, like looking <laughs> through, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop, even though we... You know, I, again, I'm a finance guy, so I was just as jaundiced and negative about these products as, um, a, you know, as, as probably a lot of people listening to this uh, are. And um, uh, and then in 2016, uh, a, a guy who's a bit of an idol of mine, who I had the pretty cool privilege of getting to interview in the last month uh, on our show was Roger Ibbotson. And I know you know who Dr. Ibbotson is. Uh, he came out with a, a research paper in 2016 that was, uh, you know, far more articulate than our take on it. But literally, it was a 16-page research paper that highlighted everything we were talking about and how he thought that this would make a great bond replacement or, or at least supplement to a bond portfolio. And that was really vindication for us. Um, you know, the world of finance. I, I, you know, I don't need to tell you this, but a lot of opinions floating on it, floating around out there. And I think one of the biggest things people want to do is catch somebody with their pants down, you know, sit there and prove that somebody's an idiot and they're doing stupid things. Um, you know, that's just comes that comes with managing money. It's it's fine. But, um, you know, I'll listen to these other guys rage about these annuity products and, and you get two minutes in. And I sit there and I go, they have no clue what they're talking about. They just don't. Um, and I know their arguments thoroughly because I, I have them myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I knew the case. You know, when I met somebody, when I met an investor that had an annuity, I was licking my chops, just going, this is cake. Um, they're horrible. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's been anything but. And I'll make a pretty bold statement. I think in the retail side of investing, you're going to see somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of retail clients in the next 10 years that have a product like this in their portfolio with at least a 15 to 20 percent um, allocation to it. Just because on a risk-adjusted basis, they blow bonds out of the water. I mean, we got our three-year returns back on one of our most recent products, and it has not been our best performer, but it's been it's been good. And you know, we've got clients that are up 21% in the last three years in a product that has no fee and no risk. So, again, not not the most exciting thing to talk about, and and it's like it's why we call it the dirtiest word in investing. It's you know, I don't like to lead with that because I know when you do. Anybody in the investment world is immediately going to go, oh, okay, you're an insurance guy. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm really not. Um, no, but it's been it's been phenomenal for our clients. And, and it's it's been a it's really been some saving grace because it's offset some of the 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 underperformance we've had based on the fact that we're value focused. So one of the great lines from the big short is that one, the, the, uh, one of the investors says to the, the sales guy, just tell me how you're going to screw me. You know, just tell yeah. me. Tell, so yeah. 
So when you ask these guys, like, what's what's in it for them? That they, they're they, they're then able to turn around and sell the upside beyond sixty percent. Is that how they're doing it? Uh, yeah, essentially. So basically, what's in it for them is they're just sticking the, 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 the so every company's got its own special sauce and we we could we could sit here and go over this for 3 hours but essentially just so everybody else understands how is it they're offering you know 50 to 60% upside in these indexes some of the indexes some of these value um, or these volatility adjusted indexes which look i know people have issue with volatility balanced indexes I can see a potential issue, but you got to remember we're using in, this inside of an instrument that's guaranteed against loss. So essentially, all these volatility-adjusted indexes are basically uh, risk parity. It, it, it's just another take on the whole risk parity approach. And so what what the what the insurance companies are doing is they're taking between 85 to 90 percent of the capital that's invested, and they're putting it in their general general account fund, right? General account, general fund. And you know all these guys have a goal, pretty much on the insurance side, of making somewhere between three to four percent a year. Very conservative portfolios. That shouldn't surprise anybody. You know we all know the basis of how the insurance industry works. So that's really how they're making their money is is investing it and and in you know getting a piece of the performance. Um, and then they're taking the remainder of the capital, somewhere between ten to fifteen percent, and they're buying option straddles on the underlying indexes. So everybody goes, how can they guarantee you against loss? And I go, you're actually looking at it the wrong way. Their down years are typically the best for them, for the insurance companies, because they're they're not giving you any of the upside of the puts, right? They're just giving you the call upside on the right. index. So in the down years, typically their portfolios do really well because they're really, you know, very bland, very secure portfolios anyway. And they're keeping the money on the put side of the, the equation on the underlying indexes. In the up years, um, there, the, the returns for the investor be, being generated on the, on the calls on the index. So, so a client looked at me and said, well, Zach, couldn't you do that for me in my own account? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I could. And he goes, well, why don't we do it that way? And I said, well, cause I can't guarantee you against loss. Right. right. And, and that's not a risk I want to take on. And, and moreover, I don't think that that is a risk that if we can get them to saddle that risk for us, and if we can introduce third party risk into the portfolio and offset some of that risk, it, it just it, it makes sense. So, yeah, it's 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 actually pretty simple um, how they're doing it. And and, um, you know, it's like I said, it's been a pretty powerful tool. Uh, do they. Sorry, dude, I just I just completely blank. Just give me two seconds to remember what I was going to ask. It's all good. Uh, damn it. We were, we were talking yeah, about. No, I got it. Uh, do they guarantee the 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 initial amount, or do they guarantee the uh the the, the amount that it grows by each year as well? They do both. So you, you your starting principle, you can never go below that. All right. And then you also don't have fees. So you really can't go below it. Uh, and then every product is different. They've got different crediting periods of time. And at the end of the crediting periods of time on these traditional products is when the gains are added. Right. So at, at the time where the gains become actually realized, uh, the, the, the gains also become protected against loss as well. So you're, you're, you're banking it, essentially. You know, it's like taking chips off the table and stick them in your pocket. Um, and it, it's, it's, um, um, it, it's, now I'm, now I'm losing my train of thought as well. <laughs> we got, you got some editing work to do. Um, but yeah, so, so they're locking that in. And then one of the downsides of the product when we first started using it as a bond replacement, 
and supplement um, was that you had to wait to the end of the period to get the interest credited, right? So if you wanted to take a withdrawal for income or whatever, and, and that's the other thing is that there's immediate liquidity in these products, typically around 10% of the contract value per year. Now, most of our clients are utilizing these inside of a retirement account and everybody gets hung up on, well, but if you want to go over that, you got surrender fees. And I go, well, buddy, 80% of your capital is in an, you know, an IRA account. You've got a 30% surrender charge on it. It's called taxes, right? right? So, you know, are you planning on sucking 50% of your IRA out in any given year? No. So what are we worried about? Right? So, uh, but the evol- we've seen the evolution of the product. So Nationwide came out with a product that's got something called daily tracking. So you can essentially, when you look at this product that Nationwide's put out there, it's a fee-free balanced mutual fund that's insured against loss. That's essentially what it is. And any given day, even though your gains aren't aren't protected, so if you're in the middle of a crediting period, let's call it two years, even though those gains, you haven't reached the end of the crediting period, so they're not they're not uh, insured yet against loss. If you want to take a withdrawal mid-period, you pull based on the value that day. And that's a new thing. That's a new aspect that Nationwide patented. So, um, you know, and I actually spoke to that with Dr. Ibbotson and, and he goes, yeah, that's a great point. He goes, it essentially is a balanced mutual fund that's insured against loss with no fee. So, I, you know, like I said, we knew when we started doing this, we were swimming upstream. Um, and that we are cutting against the grain and I've gotten some pretty good Twitter spats with guys about this. And I honestly, I don't even typically like to bring it up between other investors because I just don't want to go through the hour long conversation about why we do it and the efficacy of it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's really proven its strategy. You know, show me another bond portfolio that's really secure that's averaged 7% over the last seven years. I mean, it just doesn't exist. I mean, it's better returns than you've gotten out of high yield. Let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about geopolitical risks to the market. Talk to us about China and the trade deal. Is okay, it happen? so oh man, uh, yeah. I, Is it politics? And, Is it just wait until the end of the year and then pull a rabbit out of the hat? Look, we've we've solved it. Yeah, that. So let, for, let me offer a disclosure here. I'm I'm not a part of a political think tank and and. Uh, <laughs> not a geopolitical expert, but it's, it's a hobby of mine, I, I guess I, I should say. And in this world of centrally, central bank driven markets, I think it's something we got to pay more attention to. But um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens after the G20. My personal view based on the stance of China is I don't really see why. I think it's, it's, it's kind of a, it, it, there's two sides of the coin. I'm going to be concerned if they capitulate and sign a deal that's, that's what Trump wants. And the reason I'm going to be concerned about that is because I think the only reason they would do that is if they thought things were coming unraveled. Because you're looking, you know, they know what the state of, of the political, you know, intensity and rhetoric is in our society today. They're, they're not idiots. And they're looking at Trump. I think Trump has really caught them off guard. I don't think they had Trump figured or a Trump-like person figured into their 100-year plan. Um, I don't think anybody did. You know, um, and so, you know, I look back and think, A, I don't think China can afford to play it straight. Really, I, I you know, I don't I don't think they can without, you know, serious disruptions to their economy. So so I think the thing that makes the most sense if I'm in Z's shoes would be to sit back and see what happens in the election. So the only reason why I don't think that they would do that was if things were unraveling worse. Um 
And, you know, that that goes into the whole tariff discussion as well. Right. Um, I happen to be a fan of the tariffs, not because I'm a Trump sycophant by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I just I really don't understand the whole issue. I, I don't I don't get it. I understand whenever I talk to somebody who's really anti tariffs, it typically always is it devolves into how much they hate Trump. Right. Um, I, I look at it and I think that trade is more fair with the tariffs on. I think it's long overdue. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at, at the pushback on it. I, I, I don't understand it. Um, I think it's probably the best thing he's done since he's been in office. And, you know, at some point, these people have to start playing by the rules. Um, and, you know, not robbing us blind. I don't think we're asking a lot. So I, I, I think, I think, I think a deal will definitely get done at some point. Um, I just think it's the context, right? The other side of it is I don't see Trump capitulating unless markets are significantly down. And we're sitting here talking today and the S&P just hit all-time highs. So, you know, stock market Trump, he's not going to back down as long as he's got the equity markets at his back. And um, like I said, I don't think Z is going to back down unless things are really nasty. So I, I, to, me it's fa- to me, it's fascinating. I think it's far more important. Um, you know, you're talking about China. China's made up 50% of global growth over the last decade, right? I mean, it's a big deal. So I, I think it's going to have a lot to say with what markets look like over the next several years. Well, let's talk a little bit about precious metals. Do you, do you allocate to them? or what, How do you feel about them? What do you think about them? Wow. <laughs> you, 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 you're hitting it on all on all uh, on all sides. This is a um, test. I'm just trying to. Yeah. I'm running you through geopolitics, yeah, equities, yeah. insurance, yeah, precious metals. Yeah. Uh, so I was a huge precious metal bull um, in '09, uh, in '08. Uh, I just thought the writing was on the wall. That had a lot to do with our outperformance uh, in 2010. Um, and then, thank God. I, right when it was flirted, when gold was flirting with two thousand dollars, it just seemed like too much, too fast. The other caveat to throw in there is that um, I've been involved in the in the gold mining sector since I was a little kid. So my dad did a lot of VC deals, my grandfather as well, uh, funding gold mining projects, things like that. You know, when gold was really hot in the early '80s. So I spent summers at gold mining operations, and I've been, you know, all over North America to different gold mining operations, and so. Well, we saw we saw companies taking on leverage. It just looked very much from being on the inside of it, um, looked very much peak cycle. And we pulled back on our gold exposure in 2011, right by the highs, thinking that it was we'd get a better entry point. And um, thank God we we did pull back because that entry point never came. So we really hadn't had much exposure in gold um, over the last five years, six years at all. We've taken some shots here, had a good run. In 2015, um, we, based on a theory, uh, we got pretty significantly, I think we were 25% gold right after, two days after the Fed announced the first rate hike at the end of 2015, we had a 20 to 25% of the portfolio allocated to gold. I So getting back to your original question about what, where I see that going, I think that a guy that we've had on our radio show a few times put it best. That's Luke Groman, and he said that he thinks that gold will end up being the credit default swap of this cycle. Um, I, you know, maybe it doesn't deliver those kind of returns, but I think at some point, um, I, I, I see that playing out. I, I, you know, and and we've, 
you know, if anybody's been involved in gold markets or precious metals markets, you realize that, you know, if it goes against you, you got to be quick to pivot because it can be very painful. Um, and so we're very cautious on that. But at some point, there has to be um, a reckoning for, you know, all of this printing. And at some point, just to, and to me, it really it really goes hand in hand with the whole value thing that, you know, you and I both subscribe to is that, um, you know, markets are teeter totters, right? And, and you load up one side of the boat and ends up going back the other way. And as much as no one cares about anything real right now, I can see the rush into gold, you know, making the period of, you know, 2009 to 2011 look like child's play. And I think we'll see it at some point. It just seems fitting. And, um, you know, I for the average investor out there, I would suggest a permanent allocation somewhere between five to 10 percent. I don't know. We play it more tactically than that, which I'm not sure is a good idea. I'm always hesitant to pull down our gold exposure because, you know, I don't want to get obsessed about the short term negative moves and miss the big move that I very much believe is going to come. Um, but at some point, I, and I look at it just kind of like a margin call, at some point, central banks are going to have to back all the paper they put out there, right? And the, the paradigm will shift, and it will probably shift rather violently. And the scramble for real assets, real value, um, I think will be biblical. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to be a, a big winner at some point. It's funny, the cycles aren't that long. Like, I, I remember .com 1.0, and then... Yeah inside the decade we were in this precious model uh, precious material precious metals super cycle and that's gone yeah. away and now we're in dot com 2.0 so it's easy to see that there's precious metals super cycle 2.0 not that far away yeah I, i'm just shocked it's gone on this long um and but you know this gets into another thing that i was thinking about uh leading up to this interview is that you know there's so much ranting and raging at the Fed and central banks, and I think that every ounce of it is earned. Um, I don't think that we have fully digested what the long-term implications of it all means. And that essentially, if you look at it on a kind of a philosophical take, you know, central banks have basically come out and said that they recognize that their currencies are valueless. I mean, if you're going to print that much and you're going to say that there's no that there's no side effect, what are you saying? You know, if you take too much of any medication, it can have negative impacts, right? But the, these central bankers would have you believe that there's no possible negative outcome from all this printing. So I look at it and I go, okay, so you're admitting that it's that it's essentially worthless. Um, well, I mean, which it is, right? Every fiat currency's gone the same way over a long enough timeline. And or on an, on a long enough timeline, and um, I, I I I you know I, I think we're just, like I said I, I I think we're just really beginning to digest, and we probably won't fully digest until decades down the road with a lot of hindsight um, to really realize the full impacts of what's going on. And when you apply that metric, one of the things that I always think about is, you know. To me, central banks are the best justification. If you're going to make a justification for high equity valuations, I think central banks are the best justification. You know, um, what would you rather have? You know, Italian government sovereign debt or, you know, shares of Apple, right? Who do you trust your money with more? Um, you know, and if you pick the Italian sovereign debt that's trading in a premium to 10-year U.S. treasuries, you know, good luck. Um, you know, I... Or, you know, then you get into Argentinian 100-year bonds, right, and 100-year bonds where they've defaulted four times in the last 100 years. I mean, it's just – it's madness. And um, 
it's, you know, it's, it's never fun to sit out a party, you know, and kind of feel like I've been doing that. Like I've been the designated You're driver. You're the designated but, driver. I was just going to yeah. say that. Yeah. And I, Hey, I'd rather be in the party too. I, I'm, you know, I make no bones about it, but, um, it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I never, I, I, you and I spoke about this at great length. I never thought that we'd be in this position, never thought that we'd be here. And it's, man, it's challenging. It's, it's, it's certainly tough trying to find value and trying to stay disciplined. But, um, you know, you got to do when you're, when you're looking over other people's money, um, you know, the t- I think the toughest part is the professional risk you're taking. Um, and I think that's where you just need to get resolute and, and stick with your model and stick with your process and just tell clients, look, um, the performance will come. You just gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta give it time. Sobering thoughts. Uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, Zach, what's the best way of doing that? Well, they can always follow me on Twitter for my random musings and, and rantings. What's, uh, what's your Twitter handle? At KYR Radio. So at KYR Radio. Um, and then we also post, we, we do a weekly radio show and that, that posts over to podcast as well. So uh, they can listen to that. And we've had some great, we've had you on a couple times. Um, Bill Fleckenstein, we've had him on a couple times. Luke Groman, uh, Brent. Brent Johnson, you know, a lot of the guys that Ibbotson, have been on Real Vision. Yusko. Ibbotson, yep, yep. Several with Mark Yus- Yusko, um, Ibbotson. We, yeah, we, 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 which has been one of the coolest things about doing the radio show is getting to talk to a lot of these guys. And uh, hopefully it's good content. People seem to enjoy it. And we try to – the other thing is, is there's a lot of guys out there. Like I listen to some of the guys you have on your podcast, like uh, uh, Chris Cole. I, he's one of my favorites. I love volatility. And um, we come at it from a little bit different angle because we're talking to retail people. So we try to keep it a little more simple, a little less esoteric. And I mean that in the best way. Not I love listening to those guys. But, you know, the average retail investor is kind of eyes glaze over. So um, ours is a little bit more plain spoken. And, um, yeah, it's it's I, I'd encourage people to check it out. And so where do they what, what's the uh, what's the what's the website to find that? Okay, so well, you can find it at our website. So bulwarkcapitalmanagement.com. Uh, we've got a link to our podcast site on there. The other thing you can do is get us on Stitcher. That's the one that I refer most people to. So just Google Know Your Risk Radio Stitcher and it pops right up. Um, and we have a YouTube page where we separate out our individual interviews. I believe you're on there. Um, so uh, and you can, again, just Google Know Your Risk Radio and it'll pull right up on or, or on YouTube. You can search Know Your Risk Radio and it'll come up. We'll put the links in the show notes to this. Uh, I read all the comments too. So uh Please leave comments, leave reviews on iTunes. We do read all of that stuff. Uh, Zach? <laughs> yeah, but just spare me the annuity comments if you would, right? <laughs> I've heard them all. I've heard them all many times. Zach Abraham, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it.